welcome to another edition of Trinity College Dublin Talks. I'm Tom Malloy and with us today is Dr. Susan Flavin, who's a professor of history at the university and a principal investigator in the ERC-funded project Food Cut. Dr. Flavin looks at what people ate and drank in the 16th century and more generally what they consumed, what kind of clothes they wore and so on. And this is an area that you would think that we would know a lot about, but in fact, Susan, it's fair to say, is kind of a bit of a closed shop. We know surprisingly little about uh, how the wealthy and the poor mm. ate. I mean, let's start with perhaps your most eye-catching piece of research, the piece of research <laughs> that has gained quite a lot of newspaper column inches, <laughs> which is how much people drank and how much beer they drank in, in the 16th century. It seems they drank quite a lot. They did. Um, the records suggest that people drank from between, if they were working hard, from between 8 to 14 pints of, of beer a day. Everybody's very interested in, <laughs> in that. Um, and as part of the project, we're going to delve quite deeply into, um, into beer consumption. So bringing together lots of different approaches to recreate 16th century beer. Um, because we might know that there's lots of complaints about drunkenness, for example, in this, in this period. Um, we, we might have very good records to show us exactly what's going in, uh, how beer is being made and the components of beer, but nobody's actually really um, tried to make it yet to see what, what we get when we, when we do that. Does it, does it make people drunk or, or not? How strong it is, <laughs> How I strong is, is it? As, as close as we can question. get to that, yeah. 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 So let's, let's take a step back, first of all. Um, I mean, you're, you're, you're from Tipperary. Mm -hmm. how, how did you become interested in what is to my mind, the most interesting period in history overall, the, the 16th century, when people spoke English and Irish, and where people are kind of recognisable but also very different. Where, what, what was the trajectory from Tipperary to, to what you do today? Well, I had a quite a strange background because um, I, I trained as a nurse, first of all, and I worked for quite a number of years as a, as a nurse. I trained in Cork and then I worked here in Vincent's in Dublin. Um, and I think that might be why I'm interested in social life or social history more broadly. And, and people, and I suppose a more holistic approach to history where you think about bringing other approaches together to, to address a problem. So that might be why I'm interested in that sort of, of, of history. Um, but in terms of 16th century history, I think just, uh, I find it a very exciting period because it's just lots and lots of change. All the big structures changed, the patterns of daily life changed, you've got new worlds being discovered, lots of new foods. Um, big religious changes that literally change how people live on a day-to-day -day basis. So the Lenten fast, for example, the, the disappearance of that is a huge change in, in society. Um, different ways in, in, in terms of how governments interact with people and dictate what they, they eat as the church, I suppose, declines a bit. Um, and lots of changes in terms of gender relationships and things like that. So it's all going on, I think, in the 16th mm -hmm. century. Um, and it's a very good, a good place to look at social change and how that impacts on people's lives. Yeah, the 16th century sometimes feels like the time that an alien planet was discovered, really. It's as if we discovered life on Mars and, and started interacting and started eating Martian food and so on. Exactly, yeah. mm. and how you interpret that and how you build those new things into your worldview is very, very interesting. Mm. Um, and it can tell us a lot about different cultures. That's very interesting. You trained as a nurse mm. and you worked actively as a nurse. And then did you go back to college and do an undergraduate degree in history? Yes, I came yeah. back. Um, I did an undergraduate degree in history at UCD and I worked as a nurse all the way through that. Um, then I did a master's in Bristol and I still worked as a nurse. And then I had a research job after, after that master's that led to this project on Irish trade, which I guess is where my big interest in consumption started. And then I gave up nursing. <laughs> <laughs> but for a long time I did, I did both, I suppose, yeah. And, and how, how does one kind of set about uh, 
you know, thinking about what people eat. Are you, because people didn't really, weren't in the habit of keeping diaries mm. back then. That's more of a 17th, 18th century thing. So mm. how, how do you begin to kind of interrogate the, the, the documents to find out? Or is it other things? Is it, I don't know, dissecting bowels of kind of exhumed 16th century people? How, how does one find out what they ate? So I suppose for, for me it was, it was, I started as a historian um, and I found that the sources were limited and then I decided to try and find ways that I could plug those holes or try and expand the historical knowledge. But it starts with the document for me because I am a historian. So I suppose the trade project, the, the Bristol Ireland Overseas Trade Project was the start because it shows huge change, massive changes in consumption and um, lots of new commodities coming in. Um, lots of new types of food, types of dining implements, um, a, a consumer boom. But that's the extent of what we know from that. So we know they're arriving, but we don't know where they're going. And what kind of things are arriving? What, so what, different what's new changing? types of pots mm. and um, new types of plates to eat on, which are very important because they indicate people are, are changing. They're eating from individual plates that they have to themselves, not from shared dishes. These things tell us about the civilizing process, as sociologists would, would put it. And new types of food, sugar, obviously hugely mm. important, um, hops, um, so that you know suggests the commercialization of the brewing industry, um, different types of spices. Um, but what kind of spices are coming in, for instance? Because yeah, you have one so book with saffron in the title. Saffron, saffron's probably more a dye stuff in that mm. in this period. But um, oh, cinnamon, mace, saffron, licorice, um, cumin, coriander seed. Um, yeah, lots of different types of raisins. This is coming and from the new fruit. world or from an opening up of trade in general Probably, across. You know, that Europe. actually isn't <coughs> particularly 16th century. The spices in particular are medieval um, and they tend to go out of fashion as you move into the sort of 17th century. Um, but they're still there in the, in the 16th century. Um, but yes, yeah, so opening of, tr of trade routes, the new world foods, things like turkeys um, in the household accounts, um, and sugar, obviously, very important. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of, there's a lot of change. But the problem with that is that we don't know beyond that. There's a big black hole, where is it going or who's using it? If we want to look a bit deeper, we could look at household accounts, which I've looked at, mm. which is where the beer stuff comes up. And we can get really detailed view of what a, an institution like Dublin Castle is eating on a day-to-day -day basis, every type of food, um, on which day of the week it's eaten, how much of it we can look at great seasonal trends. But again, that's Dublin Castle. What's everybody else doing? Um, is there change in other institutions or places that don't keep records? And so that's where the bringing the other disciplines in helps to sort of flesh out that, that picture. I so imagine people had to eat a lot more, you know, things, it was a colder temperature, uh, there was no central heating, which means that you need a lot of calories, people obviously didn't have cars and so on. I mean, do we have any idea of what the calorific intake was of your, your average 16th century Dubliner? Really, really depends on who, who you, you are. Who you yeah. are. <laughs> so if you look at what the elites are eating, um, you know, at, at Dublin Castle, for example, well, the range of food is quite staggering. There's something like 32 different types of wildfowl and fish, um, and they they must be consuming huge quantities of of that as well, because the quantities of beef and that consumed are, are staggering, and the quantities of alcohol as well. Um, but it's very, very difficult to look at individual consumption. We get this big picture, but what is an actual individual person eating in terms of, of calories? Very hard to, to assess overall. Um, uh, maybe as you get a bit later, you can see, for example, recipes that people had for cooking a pot of stew to feed the poor and things like that. You can work out the calorie intake in, in that, and it's, it's quite low. 
Um, mm -hmm. But of course, you've no indication of what else people are eating. Are they foraging for other things or stealing food or are they getting food as part of work? Um, so it's very hard to get a, a calorific picture. Um, we will look at um, skeletal remains and do some isotope analysis to look at um, sort of variations in terms of um, fish consumption versus meat consumption, or we can look at pots, the, the lipid analysis mm. of pots to look at meat versus dairy versus fish consumption, but it would still, it probably won't take us just to calories consumed, but more, you know, other ways to approach it, I suppose. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned <coughs> looking at isotopes, because of course, you know, whilst most of us tend to think of history as being, uh, being uh, the pursuit of an individual researcher, probably in the archives, Modern history is, is, is really often a collaborative exercise across different universities and, and across different dif disciplines, because I presume uh, you needed a bit of help to, to look at isotopes, or maybe I'm wrong. But, but how does it work in your case with your ERC grant? Um, I mean, are you using lots of different collaborations? Yes, very, very much so. So we have, we're working with archaeologists. Um, we have a team at UCD at the moment who are working on collating all of the evidence from archaeological reports in Ireland in our period, so sort of 1550 to 1650, and we've extended it back a little bit as well. Um, so we have great archaeological support, um, and a specialist, Marion McClatchy, who works on environmental archaeologists, so she's an expert on plants and seeds and food like that. We're working with a zoo archaeologist in Sligo, Fiona Beglin, who um, will help with animal bones. Um, we're working with isotope specialist in Durham, um, a lipid analysis specialist in Bristol. Sorry, what's a lipid? You'll have so, to explain so to me. So basically, pots, when you cook food in them, um, they form a residue that seeps into the pot. Um, and we can do, we can analyze, or scientists can now analyze the, the, the chemical residue at a molecular level to right. establish what's being cooked in the, in the pot or so stored in the pot. So you can take a pot from 400 years ago. You can. You can work out yeah. what was cooked in that pot. Yeah, and Amazing. it's very exciting yeah. because it hasn't really been done for our period mm. because there was a belief that because the pots were glazed, the fats wouldn't soak through. But they've now discovered this is very groundbreaking stuff, but that you can because they're very badly glazed. So the, um, f the lipids do soak through, so we can get traces of those to, um, to analyze as well. Um, so, so yes, we and as well, we have, we're working with um, statisticians and um, we've got a new collaboration with Andrew Parnell and Maynooth. So once we've collated the archaeological evidence, we'll work um, with Andrew to see if we can look at trends in, so for example, our pots coming in, um, then we can look at the, the archaeological spread of those and then we can start to look at trends in, in those um, in temporal terms, but also in spatial terms, so where are they going and then how, how are they being used by looking at the, the residues in them, for example. So it's trying to bring, bring all of that together. And is your research, does it sit within a larger kind of set of research? I mean, have people been doing this now for some years, say in France or in Spain, or, or is it kind of quite unusual, quite, quite quirky? I, I just don't know. It is quite quirky. I think food as a discipline is new. So mm. people study different aspects of food, mostly in production, you know, um, but not consumption really. And as an actual formal discipline, it's very new. The, the journals that go with food history are <coughs> new. Everything's quite new about it. And we're all still, I suppose, learning how to, to do it, how to treat food as a discrete subject. But it is a, ver a naturally very interdisciplinary field. Um, I would say that you can't really study it unless you're happy to work with other people. Um, because mm. it's a big problem that we have to solve, but you can't do it as a historian alone. So I think it lends itself maybe more naturally to interdisciplinarity than some, some fields do. 
Um, each of the sort of methods that we're using here have been tried in various other contexts. Isotope analysis on humans to establish diets, not new, but it hasn't been done in our period. Um, and it's often associated with prehistory, um, where it's limited to some extent because we have no records to, to support what people were eating. So the idea is that if we apply it to a period where we have some historical records, we'll get a really detailed, a much more detailed view. Um, because sometimes we know, um, in some cases, we know exactly when people died. For example, if it's um, a castle that was under siege, which we're interested in looking at, and we have some human remains and we know exactly how long they were under siege and how they died, the scientists will have so much more to work with because they have quite specific um, historical information. And then they can see if they can see the evidence of that in the isotope signatures on the human remains. So it's very exciting, I think, when you start to bring, bring it all together. What, what do you think are the, the qualities of a good historian? What do you think you need to be interested in if anyone were listening and wondering, thinking to themselves, I would like to switch from nursing or anything else to history. <laughs> what, what kind of, what, how, what kind of, how should their mind be? I think built? it's a curious mind, um, someone that won't let something lie, I suppose. So if you can't find the answer to the question approaching it one way, I think it's to be curious enough to find another way to do it um, and flexible enough, I think, to, to do that. So you have to be quite dogged in terms of hunting down sources and, um, yeah, prepared to look for them in all kinds of different places. But I think curiosity for me is always what makes a good, a good historian. And I like to see that in students, people who have initiative and who really want to find the answer and will do that in take creative approaches to, to doing that. It's kind of solutions orientated Solutions, are, I think yep. so, yeah. Problem yep. solvers yeah. Um, yep. who have creative ways of, of approaching a problem, yeah. Now, You've got me kind of curious. I, I'm wondering if, if we sat down to a dinner in Dublin Castle in 1650, <laughs> uh, do you think we would have been able to stomach the meal or would it have been uh, you know, completely weird and different and kind of yeah. uh, difficult? I mean, would you like to have a, a meal? No, I wouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> I, think that the, I think the tastes and flavours would have been completely different to what we're, what we're used to. Um, there's an argument it's the sort of the extreme argument that the people in sort of the, the medieval period and into the early modern period didn't taste the way we do and didn't use foods. You mean that foods. their, their palate was actually um, different? Or well, they or used what? foods for very different reasons. So a lot of the mm. time, sort of the more, the, the real sort of cultural approach to this, I suppose, is that foods were, were medicines to a certain extent and people believed food had a very different impact on your, your body. So people believed in humoral theory. So if you're a what, what's that so now? they believe that the, the body's kind of governed by four humors oh yeah. and they have properties. Mm. So for example, you might be a cold, um, phlegmatic person and therefore you should eat warming foods. Or for example, a fish might be a cold type of food. If you're cold humorally and you eat it, you're going to become unwell. So then you put things like spices on that fish to correct the properties. Um, and to, to make it more healthy. So people had really very different ideas about, about food and how it impacts on your, on your body. And that, uh, and that affected taste because people used foods um, as correctives or in very different ways to, to how we use them now. Um, and so a lot of the sort of medieval food was very heavily spiced if you were an elite um, and very saucy and very rich and probably almost like a sort of a sweet and sour flavor um, probably because of this sort of medicinal mm. influence and taste and fashion and things like that. But it would have tasted very different and very salty, if you can imagine. So if you're eating, observing a Lenten fast and you're eating 
dried herring for six weeks in a row, one meal a day. That's hardcore, salty food. Um, and probably you'd need to drink quite a lot of beer to, to counteract to that, <laughs> that taste. So and yeah, when I was the big <laughs> meal in? Was it at lunchtime? Or was it at dinner time? Yeah, I mean, I guess that, again, depends on who you are. So, yes, if you're, if you're an elite, um, if you're out working, you'd probably eat in, you know, in between um, or on the go. To but yes, earlier than us, yeah. Yeah, earlier than us. they're kind of crazy in some ways, <laughs> weren't they? And one of the things that everything was in a kind of a chain. They believed in this big chain that we're all interlinked. But I, I think I'm right in saying, or am I, that they also had a kind of a hierarchy of foods that, that kind of things like carrots uh, were kind of regarded as inferior to, I don't know what, tomatoes, because, because the carrots were further away from God than the tomatoes. Is that correct? Oh, yes, it is. That's the sort of Alan Greco, the culture food historian, um, writes about this idea. And it's this great, the great chain of being, so mm. that all foods are sort of um, aligned hierarchically in an ascendant order. So, um, and, and what's interesting about that is that social class is hierarchical as well. So the idea is that if you're at the bottom of the food chain as a human, you should be eating foods at the bottom of the, of the food chain. You're just turnip and you should be yeah, eating turnips. So, yeah. so root vegetables and beans have a strong association with peasants, for example. Um, and you find that in the, the literature a lot. So, and this, uh, this um, researching this at the moment, but um, in Irish literature as well, you find these European ideas very much um, to the fore. So peasants in a 17th century Irish satire um, are sort of assigned exactly the same foods based on this food hierarchy. So they're associated with um, parsnips and beans and the entrails of animals um, and heavy, dark foods, whereas elites are usually associated with delicate, lighter, more noble foods. Whether or not that actually translates into actual, you know, um, historical truth, whether people eat those things or their metaphors, um, that's for, that's a very interesting problem. Then something that we will look at on the on the project too. So are these representations based on observation or are they um, fictions that are spread throughout Europe? But it is interesting that the same ideas do tend to. Um, they're all over Europe. It's kind of an almost a universal food ideology in this period, which I think is very interesting. Tommy, I have two, two last final questions, if you will. The first is, I'm, I'm curious where this fits into other history and, 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 you know, and, and, and what other historians who are perhaps more interested in more conventional subjects like diplomatic history or, you know, Legal, legal systems and the kind of stuff that is the bread and butter of, of history, what they make of your, your research interests. Um, I, I, I happen to be quite tall. It's always <laughs> struck me that it's, it's very difficult to find out if people were taller or smaller in the past. In fact, historians seem to disagree. It seems to me a very simple topic. You just take a thousand skeletons and measure them, but, but it seems to be difficult. So I've, I'm, I've always been interested in these kind of areas and rarely seen them addressed. Um, is that because there are so many, uh, do you think, first order issues that still have to be kind of teased out, especially in an Irish context where, where we have a complicated history and not that many people have had a chance to look at it? Or is it that men tend to have different interests to, let's face it, women do a lot more cooking than men, maybe you know, there's more interest uh, as, as uh, we have more female historians. I mean, how does it fit into this bigger, bigger picture of our what kind of history we do as a society? I think, first of all, food history has always struggled to be taken, as a, taken seriously as a discipline. This has completely changed, but really very, very recently. Um, and I think it's for those reasons, I suppose, it is um, f 
food tends to be associated with the private sphere, with the domestic, with, mm. with women. Um, politics and diplomacy are the public sphere and they're more male oriented. That may be one, maybe one reason. Um, food historians debate quite a lot in terms of why people didn't study food. And that's a question I give my students on the first day. Why did we not study food? Um, sometimes I suppose food is fun, you know, and sometimes <laughs> maybe people take themselves so, so seriously they feel they shouldn't be having fun when they're, when they're but there, there's that aspect to it as well. And um, there's also the argument that people want to disassociate themselves from food. It's material, it's real, it's very visceral. It's not one of the higher orders like philosophy, for example, and that might be another, another reason. Um, in Ireland, I think there's a particular ideological problem. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, we are really actually very far behind in terms of new approaches to, to food. Um, and that is because we study famine a lot, we study hunger mm. a lot, um, and we haven't sort of, you know, embraced the idea that we can explore gender or we can explore class or we can explore other things through food. Um, we tend to approach from a very, very narrow um, narrative, I suppose. So there's a few things going on, going on there as well. And in terms of interdisciplinarity, I think we s you know, sometimes are slow to move out of our own boxes and think about what other people are, are doing. Um, and it can be quite challenging. And sometimes you feel like a bit of a jack of all trades because I will never be an expert on isotopes or on archaeology. And sometimes my colleagues have to show me pictures they would use for their first year undergraduates to explain this is what we do and how we approach it. And some people, I suppose, don't like <laughs> don't like that. But uh, you know, if you're going to embrace it, then you know you have to be prepared to learn um, a lot how other people do things. And maybe that's challenging, I suppose, for, for some people too. One of the things I love about history is how seemingly esoteric subjects can suddenly become incredibly relevant to the debate of the times. And I, I'm, I suppose I'm thinking at the moment particularly about sustainability. That, um, you know, what, what, how often the Thames froze in the 16th century is now very interesting because we can begin to calculate how much warmer the temperatures are today. Has, um, and I was thinking of that when you mentioned that there were 30 different kinds of guinea fowl in Dublin <laughs> Castle and you know and there's probably a lot more variety in some ways of, of food that you could go out and catch back then than there is today. Has it, um, has your research kind of uh, told us anything about the present that we might not have known or is it useful or is it mm. a discrete piece of research that doesn't really I think um, I think it is. It's, it's probably something I haven't done that much work on yet, really. But um, people did eat every single part of, of an animal, for example. Um, people, you know, in the medieval period, people used bread trenchers um, rather than plates. And I did see some company recently in, in London was setting up bread trenchers or this idea of returning to sustainable eating. I thought, well, people, that's not new. People did that in the past. So I suppose. What's this? Is it a, a plate made yes, out of bread? Yes, yeah, um, like in yeah, Ethiopia and today. And some yeah. rustic yeah. restaurants mm. would even serve you food in that, sort of, in that sort of way. So we returned to these ideas, but from a different perspective, I suppose. Only posh people eat their, <laughs> their <laughs> soup from a bread trencher now. But, um, but yeah, so I suppose we, can, we could learn a lot about sustainability. Um, you know, maybe by thinking about how people ate in the in the past um, as well, um, and in terms of again, um, the, the sort of the, the, the there are no limits to the interdisciplinarity of this. We have um, Francis Ludlow in history working on climate and the environment. Mm. Um, this as is well. in Trinity College. Uh, yeah. Now. Yep, um, yep. So we could uh, we could you know already discussing ways that we could sort of bring that climate data into the food data and see mm. if we can um, look at the impact of climate change on on diet over this discrete period. So I suppose as we progress, we find lots of new of new avenues. 
Yeah, I presume um, when mm. things are in season might might mm -hmm. change uh, as, as the as climate exactly. changes. Exactly, yeah. 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 Well, Dr. Susan Flavin, <laughs> thank you very much for, for talking about uh, the, the, the history of food and, and food in history. Thanks again. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks. <laughs>